covenants, and we are going to start dealing with those and walking through those. Very much looking forward to going through those with you. It'll probably be two weeks on these. I think that they are a crucial element in understanding eschatology, and we'll see as we go along. You know we've developed and, and talked about... Uh, um, uh, hermeneutics. We worked with, started with hermeneutics and how it's important. Let's kind of walk through a couple of these key principles for hermeneutics to start with. Uh, remember we talked about a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. We're looking for the, original, uh, the author's original intent of the passage. We attempt to understand each passage in its historic context. Um, Word meanings, historical background. We attempt to understand each passage in its normal grammatical literary argument. We take into account normal literary devices such as figures of speech and metaphors. We avoid allegorizing and spiritualizing the meaning. Okay, all these things are basis, again, for uh, a right eschatology or view of eschatology. Then we saw the church's approach to hermeneutics and how it changed over history. It started... Uh, um, We'll, we'll talk a little bit about this a, a little bit more today, but ultimately we must avoid falling into the trap of Origen and later Augustine in the allegorization of many passages or, or spiritualizing, over-spiritualizing things. We recognize that Augustine was not near as bad as Origen in his hermeneutical error. However, we attempt to do what the Reformers began to reestablish during the Reformation, a literal, syntactical, contextual understanding of Scripture. Pretty much y'all understand what I'm talking about by now, right? These things? Okay. Uh, and then third, the grammatical, historical, theolo theological. We talked about how we need to be very careful uh, of forcing a th our theological presuppositions on a text. The principle of Scripture interprets that Scripture does not give us license to make a text fit our theological system. Does everybody understand? You can't. I'm a premillennialist. This verse, oh yeah, that's going to be pre-mill, no matter what. You can't do that. We're not allowed to do that. Um, the principle of Scripture interprets the Scripture probably should be a check more than a first line of interpretation. When we come to a text that does not fit our theological system, we should ask a couple of questions. First, is it possible the text doesn't even speak to my theological system? That's a good possibility. The author might not even be talking about that issue. Okay, so don't make that a proof text or, or try to fit your system into it. Second, is it possible that my system is wrong? And third, is it possible I have interpreted the passage wrong? These are the checks, okay? Everybody understand so far? Okay, good. Um, and then finally, the New Testament use of the Old Testament. We must attempt to stick with the principle of singular meaning even when we are looking at the New Testament and the Old Testament. Okay? The New Testament's use of the Old Testament. We must try to understand how the New Testament writer is using the Old Testament uh, original meaning. We must be careful not to assume that the New Testament is reinterpreting or redefining a particular Old Testament passage. Very, very important. We must realize that some of the passages in the New Testament appear to apply Old Testament concepts that are not meant to be an ex This is not meant to be an excuse to ignore or redefine the original meaning. We recognize that at the end of the day, there are some very difficult passages where the original Old Testament context meaning is hard to see. 
but this is the exception, not the rule. So there is original meaning in the Old Testament. We need to try to find out what that is and not make the New Testament be the way that we understand a passage. Do you understand? The, uh, the covenantal uh, Amil systems as a whole do tend to use the New Testament to interpret Old Testament passages. For example, the land promises to, to Abraham. The New Testament says we're, we're the seed of Abraham. Okay? So you get this? So we got to look back and say then that means that those promises to Abraham are for the church or they're spiritualized. Because I'm taking that New Testament concept and I'm trying to explain my Old Testament passages. Do you understand? Does everybody understand? Questions? Yeah, they might say that that's not a literal land. It's not a river to a river, as first as Genesis 15 states, or that those promises are uh, really spiritual promises for the future. Do you understand? And that does happen because we have these glasses. We put these New Testament glasses, and we're trying to look back and say, how does these two things fit together? Do you understand? So we have to be very careful going through this. We must. Keep all these principles in mind as we attempt to understand a passage that deals with the eschat- with eschatology and ecclesiology. Yeah. That's a good question. I would say that you need to try to figure out what the New Testament author is saying with what he's saying. Okay. Here's what happens when he's saying something, okay? We do need it would help for us to understand what the Old Testament meaning was, okay? And that that's something that we should strive to know. But the reality is is he might not even be speaking about all the things that were that the Old Testament was saying. He's just given an application, for example, okay? So what a lot of people do, well, they'll get to the New Testament passage and they'll see the seed of Abraham idea or whatever these concepts are, and they'll blow them up to expand to mean a whole bunch more than it really even the author is even talking about in that passage. And therefore, they then end up spiritualizing the original meaning. Okay? So just let each passage speak for itself in its original context. What's the author trying to say in the passage? He's not saying more. And now I admit to you, that this is not easy to do. The reason why is because all of us, when we read our Bibles, we have a tendency to see, oh, this verse is like that verse. And this verse is like that concept. And so what we do is we look at a passage and we see all of Scripture in our minds. But one of the problems that, with that is, is that we're speaking more than what the author, even in the New Testament, is saying at that specific time. He's not saying more. Does that make sense? Okay, let's keep going. All right, so the priority list we went through, hermeneutics, primary thing. Second, second, Platonism versus creationism. Platonism versus creationism. Let me see if I can find this. Platonism versus creationism. Anybody want to give me a stab at what you think, what you might think Platonism is? Anybody want to give a shot at what Platonism is? Well, I don't assume that Plato being the um, 
Right. Right, Plato, does anybody know basically when Plato was around? Anybody, just a, just a guess. Oh, is it on my sheet? Great guess. Ay, 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 when we did these things. Okay, so, so tell me what's going on around that time. Anybody want to give me a, a, a stab at what's going on around that time? Between the Testaments. Okay. Greek gods, yeah. Okay, Hellenism, that is, is that uh, the Judaism is being... Judaism is being influenced by... Here, take all these. Judaism is being influenced by Greek thought process. When you think of Plato, what do you think of Plato? What is he? He's a philosopher, exactly. Yeah, he's a philosopher. All right. So, when we con consider this, what do you think... That it, what you're going to see is, is that his influence... Pulling these up, just hang with me, okay? His influence on interpretation and thought influenced greatly into our thought process and in the way that we view Scripture and how we view uh, eternal life. Um, somebody describe for me heaven. Tell me what heaven's like. Worshiping God all day. Somebody give me, worshiping God all day. Worshiping God all day. All the time? Current heaven. Let's say, it's current, heaven. <laughs> current heaven and the eternal state. Heaven, what's it going to be like? No Tell me what it's like. No more tears. No more tears. No more pain. Huh? Sinless. In the presence of God. A city? New Jerusalem. White robes. Halos. Angels. Sitting on clouds with harps. Everybody's singing all the time. Kind of hazy, kind of mysterious. You know, like the fog. You know, you're in the presence of God. Spiritual, not physical. Plato is speaking. Plato is speaking. This is what was taught. He taught the spiritual realm, the spiritual, that everything spiritual was good and everything material was bad. And there was a spiritual aspect. And so what we did and people would do is, is they would begin to read the Bible through the paradigm and the thought process that everything's spiritual and, after all, nations are what? Oh, they're corrupt. Can't be nations in heaven. 
Do you see? All these things start to impact the way that you view everything. How many of you have read Alcorn's book, Heaven? One, two. There's two of you. Oh, every one of you should read that book. Would you say it was, it, it was, it's, it's, it's amazing. It changes the way that you think. Because what you start realizing is, is that when did work start? Before or after the curse? Before the curse. It got hard after the curse. Hard work started after the curse. Work was not bad. When was physical relationships before or after? I would argue that they already had physical relationships before the curse, before the fall. Those things aren't bad. But Plato and his spiritual paradigm of thing has, or has influenced the way that we interpret passages. So we take a passage and we say, no, that's got to be spiritual. Instead of reading it as an early Christian Jew would have read it. An early Christian Jew would have, didn't have that mindset. They were avoiding Plato at all costs. Because they knew it was philosophical thinking. I have to be afraid of that. So what we're going to see is that these things have influenced the way we think and the way we interpret. The roots of Platonism. Platonism is rooted in the idea of the Greek ancient philosopher Plato. Plato was one of the first philosophers to argue the reality is primarily ideal or abstract. Reality is ideal or abstract. Uh, this perspective naturally leads to negative perceptions concerning the nature of physical world and even our human bodies. In other words, they thought human bodies, he thought human bodies were bad. This is evil. This is not good. Platonism in Jewish interpretation, there was a guy from 20 B.C. to 50 A.D. His name is Philo. Let's see if he's up there. Here we go. Come on, baby. There we go. Oop, number two. Platonism is a Jewish in Jewish interpretation. Philo made an attempt to make the Old Testament more attractive to the Greek influence, Greeks influenced by Platonic ideas, allegorized many Old Testament passages that appeared to be crass or unworthy of God. So in other words, Philo was doing, he was Hellenizing, for lack of a better term. He was trying to take the Greek concept of philosophy and bring it into a Jewish mindset and interpretation of the Old Testament. So Philo would, I guess you could argue that he was one of the first believing or professing believers that allegorized things and spiritualized things. You with me? Then there's the birth of Platonism, the birth of Platonism's religion, religious counterpart, which is Neoplatonism. Anybody have an idea what Neo means? Yeah, yeah, good. The Roman philosopher Plotinus... Uh, continued Plato's teaching. Platonism in, it, Platonism's influence on early Christian theologians. Theologians of the Alexandrian. Can you tell me what were the two schools? Alexandrian and Antiochian. Antiochian. And Ali Alexandrians were 
associated with who would we say that is probably one of their main spokesmen or one that we've talked about numerous times? Origen, yes. Origen was from Alexandrian school. The Alexandrian tradition carried a high view of Greek philosophy and attempted to show that Christianity was consistent with the best Greek philosophy. Warning, 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 right? Okay, whenever you're starting to hook man-made philosophies with biblical interpretation, you're, you're in trouble. So, by the time Augustine comes, this trend had made its way into the Western thought. Clement of Alexandria in 150 to 215, Clement, in line with the Greek philosophy, Clement viewed the body and matter as lesser in nature than spirit, although he did not view the body as evil. Is your body... Is physical things less in value than the spiritual things? No. It's not. We're made in the image of God. The question is, is does the curse affect a physical body? Yes, but I think it affects the spiritual body too. Spiritual soul, right? So we can't say physical is... Bad and spiritual is good, correct? But if we start going down this way, then you can see where it can lead, right? In all of our interpretations of anything that's physical, we say, no, it can't mean that. Okay? Not always, but it can lead this. Origin of Alexandria, y'all already know about him, was important in bringing Platonism into Christianity. Origin, quote, dissolved the Christian expectation of the resurrection of the body into immortality of the soul. Since Christian perfection consists on this Platonizing view in a progressive dematerialization. Let me explain what he means. What he means is this. Did you understand that Origen said there is no resurrection? There is no resurrection of the body. Do you understand, folks, that most people would say, a lot of people would say, if you did a, a, a survey and you asked Christians, do you think your body is going to be resurrected one day? What do you think they would say? What do you think? Christians. No, they would say no. Do you understand that the Bible says that we're going to be bodily resurrected? How do you reconcile those two things? Or they say, but spiritual, physical bodies are bad. How can it be a physical resurrection of our body? Do you understand? Okay, so all this starts to permeate into the way we think. Ambrose of Milan drew up the idea of the, Jew, uh, of the Jewish Platonist writer. He drew on Philo in promoting a platonic world of ideas and values rather than a physical or geographical entity. God is about geography and physical things. This is the way it is. I think that it permeates the way that we think. Again, this is Dr. Vlock, a lot of this. Augustine. Augustine was Ambrose's pupil, was influenced by Platonic thinking. Augustine's interpretation of Plato dominated Christian thought for the next thousand years after his death into the 5th century. In, this, in his confession, Augustine openly described the help he received from Platon, Plato. 
This, thus Augustine was attracted to the spiritual interpretation of the kingdom we have already seen in origin. For Augustine, the kingdom of God consists in eternal life with God in heaven. That is the, I'm not going to give you the, the city of God as opposed to here on earth. Augustine's spiritual view of the kingdom contributed to his belief that the period of the church on earth is, a, is the thousand year reign of Christ. Okay, so in other words, what's he do? It makes sense how he could come to the conclusion, correct? If everything's spiritual, he can say that right now, what's happening? We're in the millennium. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's all now. Doesn't this make sense? So all he's done is taken a platonic thought and said that there is not a literal millennium kingdom because after all, all physical geography and all those things can't fit in that worldview. Does everybody understand? So this then gets into our thinking. All right, next. The two models of eschatology, here they are. The spiritual vision model. Anybody want to give a stab at who, where that one comes from? That would be Plato, right? This is Platonic thinking, the spiritual vision model. And then the new creation model, which would be we would say the early Christians. The early Christians. They believed that there was a renewal of the cre creation, and it is shown in church history. We'll talk about this. This model, this new creation, let me talk about the spiritual vision model first. Elemental matter occupies the lowest place. Elemental Elemental matter occupies the lowest place. Heaven is the realm of spirit as opposed to matter. Heaven is a non-earthly spiritual place for spiritual beings who are engaged only in spiritual activity. Isn't that what we're taught? Isn't that what we're shown? Eternal life is viewed primarily as cognitive, meditative, and contemplative. Okay? Whereas the new creation model, this model is contrary to Platonism and the spiritual vision model and it emphasizes physical, social, political, and geographic aspects of eternal life. It emphasizes a coming new earth, the new renewal of life in the new earth, bodily resurrection, and social and political interactions among the redeemed. So in other words, y'all get this. One model is clearly talking that God has a plan for this earth to do something with this earth. Okay? Whereas the spiritual model is all about this ethereal, heavenly-minded thing. Does anybody have any questions on this? Yes, sir. Sure. Sure. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We do know that there is a state that those people who have died are waiting. Okay, I agree with you 100. But uh, I agree with you 100. But they are looking for their glorified bodies. They're waiting on those glorified bodies. So I would say yes. At this point, they're not. We can't go too far to the other extreme, which would mean what? They're still in the grave and there's a soul sleep or something like that. We're not going there. 
okay? But they are still looking for the day when their bodies are going to be resurrected and they're going to be reunited with their bodies. And I think you see that in 1 Thessalonians 4. I would say it is a, 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 an, an invisible form where they are with God. Their soul is with God. That's about the best I can do. Okay? Are they floating around on, in, uh, in white outfits with harps? I don't think we should go there. I really don't think we should go there. I think we should say they're with the Lord, and that's about all we know. And we do know that that's not the end state. And we know that they are going to be resurrected and they are going to have glorified bodies one day. Okay? When, we, when I made this statement a couple of weeks ago, I know some of us were like, whoa, Jesus is going to eat and drink in the millennium. I think there is a physical aspect where people are going to be able to eat and drink in the millennium. We're going to have new bodies that eating and drinking and doing physical activity is not bad. That is a, a good thing. Okay? Yes, sir. Absolutely. 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 He sat and ate with them. He already had... How he got fish real quick and some of those miraculous things he did. Remember, they caught all the fish and they came up on the beach and there was already some cooking. How he did that, and that's just miraculous. But he ate with them. And that was a glorified body that he had. Yeah. What, what was the state or what was the body in which Moses and Elijah spoke on the Mount of Transfiguration? That's a great question. That's a great question. The weirdest. There's some. There's some stuff I don't know. I don't. I, I don't know. I, I can tell you this. That's why I would say that it can't just be us in these little spirit bodies that you can't recognize. It appears that they're recognizable. So somehow they have some recognizable bodies. Now, granted, uh, Elijah was taken up, and Moses' body was never found, or God hid or buried Moses' body. So I don't know. I'm not going down that road. Okay? They did have physical bodies. Maybe not. We'll we'll stop with some of these. Yeah. Okay? Um, All right. So the, 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 let's move on. So the new, the new one, the, the renewal of creation, this model operates on the belief that Life in a future kingdom of God is largely similar to God's purposes for creation before the fall. And this is a crucial element. That what happened before the fall of Adam has its final fulfillment in the millennium. Okay? The naming of the animals and ruling over the animals and doing the work of God, Doing these things, having right relationships is going to happen one day in the millennium. That everything that didn't happen because of the fall is going to be restored to be able to happen in the millennium. The curse will be lifted to a degree. Yes. Yes. The curse will be lifted. Yes. 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 
Okay, there's like three questions there, but is there sin in the millennium? Yes. Is there sin in glorified believers? No. Is there sin in those that have repopulated during the millennium? Yes. Christ will be there ruling and reigning, and I believe that we will be ruling and reigning with Him, and people will get regenerated in the millennium. Not us, because we're glorified. Right? But the, the, those that are repopulating the earth during the millennium will. Okay? And again, let's don't get too far. I, I, we're, we're, we're applying this stuff now. Do you understand? You're, getting, you're, you're connecting the dots, but let's be careful. Yeah? So the ones that get regenerated in the millennium, they're going to be like us, how we are now. But we're going to be glorified, but they're going to be like us. Yep. Yep. And, and then at the end, when he loses Satan, then they will then, some of them will not have been regenerate, and they will rise up against him. That's why it says they will lose, they've come up against him. Okay? But again, let's, let's stick to it. Let's don't go too far off into the, to the weeds. Yeah. All right. Does everybody understand? You get it? Okay. On to in church history. And by the way, um, if we went with an Amil view that said the next thing that happens is the new heavens and the new earth, we're still going to have to a answer a question. Will there be reproduction in the new heavens and the new earth? Who was he talking to? Believers. Believers, yeah. These are things to think on. Because the reality is, is I'm, I'm trying, one of the things I've been struggling with as I'm going through this class, I'm reading all the I-mail guys and the post-mail guys at the same time to see where they're at. What they often do is they take the millennium that we view, the millennium, and we just, they throw it to the inner, eternal state. They say, well, that's going to happen in the eternal state. Do you understand? They take the millennium and throw it to the inner eternal state. The Amil does. The problem is, is that anything that describes in the eternal state sin, reproduction, or, or the millennium rather, if it's describing this millennium, the Amil guys say, well, that's talking about the eternal state. So they're going to have those things either in the millennium or they're going to have them where? In the eternal state. Does everybody understand what I'm getting at here? They're saying the millennium's now. And so when they say Christ comes back and you have the eternal state, any passages that they interpret in the Old Testament, they're saying, well, that's the eternal state. If any of those passages say anything about God judging people, or there's sin, or there's reproduction, or nations growing, then that means it doesn't make sense in the eternal state. You with me? So we need to think through this. All right. Huh? Satan's gone in the eternal state. I think they would say that. Yeah, that's a whole other issue. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. All right. In the church. Okay. In church history, the new creation model appears to have the primary approach of the church. It appears to have been the primary modal of, uh, mode of 
or, or model for the early church. It was founded in apocalyptic and rabbinic Judaism in the second century Christian writers. Arrhenius, write that name down. I-R-E-N-I-R-E-N-A-E-U-S. He would be our... He would be our early church father that was a premillennialist. And he would hold to a creation model. Okay? All right. However, as church history went along, spiritual vision model takes over. The impact of Platonism on eschatology. Our eternal dwelling is in, in a spiritual dimension, not on earth. This is what they say, right? Randy Alcorn again calls this meshing of Platonism and Christian doctrine Christoplatonism. There you go. Christoplatonism. And basically what he says is these, con these concepts. Our eternal dwelling is in a spiritual dimension, not earth. Okay? That's one thing he says. Or that's what Platonism says. Randy Alcorn would go against that. And I do admit... There's not a lot of uh, information written or anybody talks very much about uh, the, the eternal state and how is that going to be physical. There's not a lot written on that. But I would argue that there has to be a physical aspect to that. Okay? I think that the eternal state has some kind of physical element to it. Okay? It's not we're still not going to just be floating around on clouds in the eternal state. I think there's a literal, physical aspect, and it's not developed very well. Planet Earth is basically evil and beyond, beyond restoration. Is that true? No, it's not. It's false. Can this Earth, can the curse be lifted? Can, can the Earth be redeemed? Yeah, I, I think it can, and I think we see it from John chapter 8, or Romans chapter 8. We see waiting for the redemption. And the creation itself is groaning with anticipation of these things. Correct? Heaven is entirely beyond human comprehension. Which, yes, but if you're talking about the transcendent of God, we're, like I talked about this morning, yes, God's much bigger than we can comprehend. However, heaven is not, it's not going to be something that we can't, we can't contemplate that there's going to be relationships. Do you understand? We're going to be able to talk to people, and it's going to be normal relationships that God has and things like this. Does this make sense? Now, obviously, we're not going to be married and given in marriage once we have glorified bodies. Our experience in eternity will be mostly... Whoa, what happened? Our experience in heaven... There you go. Read that. Somebody read that. Ooh. Right. That's what a lot of people say, right? That that's what heaven's going to be like. Or, you know, it's the, the spiritual idea. All right. And then fifth, there's no time or linear progression of history. These are thoughts that were promoted by Plato and Platonism. And there will be no nations or governments. You understand that I'm not saying that this is true. I'm saying that this is the kind of thought processes that 
have infiltrated the church in, in the way that they read Scripture. Do you understand? If you have these glasses on, the spiritual model glasses, when you read it, you're going to go, nation doesn't mean nation. It can't mean nation. If it means nation, it's a physical thing. It can't be. Spiritual thing. Are there nations involved in God's future plans? Absolutely. There's a physical, right? Huh? Yes. Absolutely. I would say absolutely there's nations in the eternal state. I think it shows God's diversity. I think that's one of the greatest pictures of heaven. I think that's exactly what he's getting at in Romans or in Revelation 4 and 5. That everything's going to that. There will be a multitude of nations. That the diversity will show itself off. That's what makes God who he is. One of the things that makes him so amazing. Look at butterflies and the way things are different. That's all beauty because of the diversity. It all screams God from a different point of view. Does that make sense? Or a different, uh, not point of view, but uh, it almost sounded postmodern. With the diversity, you know what I'm talking about. You get the gist, right? The diversity of the nations actually brings great glory. It's all kinds of different people bringing him praise. Absolutely. Absolutely in our mindset, in the way that governments run today, because everybody is more about their national ethnic thing than they are about the king of kings. But if we are all about the king of kings then it doesn't matter about our nationality. We can actually be unified in our diversity. That's the difference. That's it, it just like it's a, it's a, it's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah, and diversity of the animal kingdom. The, the diversity of the animal kingdom just shows the glory of God. Because all of them, a, a, a bird sings glory to God in a different way than a lion does. But he's still giving praise to God. And that's what we do with nations. I think the diversity shows the glory of God more. I'm going to say, doesn't diversity almost go back to the fall with the uh, Nimrod in them? And then they got different nationalities, different languages. Mm, that's a good question. So in heaven, why would you go, why would that be? Wouldn't that be like the curse thing? That's a good question. I would say that the issue with governments or the people was their pride against God more than their nationality. And I don't think that when he t- gives diversity, it doesn't necessarily mean that he can't still bring unity in that diversity. So I don't think it speaks past that. Is that what you're... Did I answer? I'm asking, why would God separate the people groups in Genesis... Like that, I think it shows, well, I think it shows that there's a problem with mankind. And in other words, it's the heart problem of mankind that he causes a diversity in languages. Well, it was almost like everybody was together and then they rebelled against God. Sure. And God separated them all. So why would he keep that separation? Why wouldn't, he, why, why wouldn't it go back just like Adam and Eve? They were just one family. Like. I think because of the sinful condition of man. I think we could all live together in perfect unity with our diversities if we were all 
controlled and run by the king. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, sure. I don't think so. I don't think that diversity is a consequence of, I guess, thank you. Thank you. No, I don't think diversity is a consequence of sin. And I haven't thought on that question, so I've got to meditate on it a little bit more. I don't think diversity is a consequence of sin. I think that's a very scary road to go down. I know that people have said things like skin color is based on curses because they were certain curse. Mount Mormon, yeah, the Mormons. <laughs> Do you understand? I don't think diversity in people groups and people and even languages is necessarily uh, because of sin. I think God allowed those diversities and that created. But He also it says that He says more than just giving them different language. He took them and put them in other parts, so they wandered off. So, I don't know. I need to think on that. I'll send Dr. Block that question if you'll word it to me and put it in an email. It's a good question. I, I, I'll, I agree with you there. I would say that there was diversity before Babel, too. I guess because they say it like at Pentecost, everybody started speaking in tongues. I heard that God was reversing the Genesis thing because God separated the tongues, and then in Pentecost, everybody started speaking the same thing. Reversing Babel. Yeah. Reversing Babel. I do think that... I do think that Babel is reversed in the millennium. I do believe Babel is ver- reversed in, mem- in the millennium. And I, when I say it's reversed, I don't think it means that it's reversed with tongue. The, the languages are still going to be there. I think the ability for glorified people to understand different languages is going to be there. In other words, I think that there are still going to be nations, because again, I'm not saying this because of me, I think the scripture says that there's still nations. But the diversity is going to be there. We're going to be governing with Christ, and therefore we're going to be able to interpret languages and direct people the proper way. So in that sense, I guess it goes away. But not completely, because the nations are still there. It's a good thought. All right, here we go. Let's keep going. Platonism and millennial views. Blazing is a premillennialist argues that Platonic spiritual vision model approach led to the rejection of the idea of earthly kingdom. Strimple, an amillennialist, when when he was uh, confronted with this in his Three Views book, he responds with, "No, some premills do this too." Strimple was asked, "When we read modern." amillennialists themselves, do we find them expressing a purely spiritual, non-physical eschatology hope? And he would say, not at all. So, I want to I get this out here real quick. Listen. Broad brushing in eschatology is a bad problem. Do you understand what I mean by broad brushing? In other words, people will say, amill say this, when not everybody, not all, all amills are that way. Not all pre-mills are one way. So there are many that are uh, amillennial that would probably hold to more of a creation model. They'd be a little bit closer to that, okay? Those that see a a plan for national Israel, okay? The the question that we have, and there are amills out there that that say that God has a a, 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 um, plan for national Israel. They're just not always consistent with how they define that, okay? 
And we'll talk about that as we go along. Earlier dispensationalists like Darby and Schofield and Shaver often drew heavily upon the spiritual vision model. And I would agree. So here we go. A dispensationalist is somebody that's a pre-mill, okay, most of the time. And they, they don't all, they're not always consistent either. Here's some observations real quick. Let's run through these. How are we doing on time? Yes, we're doing good. I want to get to the things. The church in its earliest years held a view of eschatology consistent with the new creation model. But it was not long before the church shifted to the spiritual vision approach. These are Dr. Block's conclusions about this whole concept. The shift to a spiritual vision approach to eschatology is tied largely to Platonic influences. While Platonism was a major factor in the acceptance of the spiritual vision model, various scripture passages were also used to support this spiritual vision model. You know, not given in marriage, things like that, those kind of passages. They say, well, those are spiritual concepts, okay? We just have to be careful of taking them more than what they're supposed to say. Okay? All right, talking about glorified people. The spiritual vision model has been the predominant view throughout Christian history, church history. You understand this? The Reformation period reopened the door to more serious contemplation of the new creation model. I'll send you these if you want me to. The new creation model is not the sole possession of any um, or millennial view. I agree. So, in other words, there are some amils that would still try to lean the creation model. Here's a key statement. To summarize, one can be an amillennialist and hold to some form of new creation model. Yet pre-mill, premillennialism, in general, appears to have a closer connection to the new creation model. Thus, in our view, Dr. Blocks, premillennialism is more consistent with the new creation model. Okay. Christian leaders should do more to teach the people about the coming eternal hope and dispel myths about heaven that are not biblical. Much work needs to be done thinking on the theological implications of a new creation model for amillennialists and premillennialists. Okay? You just got to keep thinking on this. How does it affect the way that we read our scriptures? When we're reading these passages, are we thinking that way? Or are we thinking with this new creation model? Does everybody ha- understand this? All right, any questions? We are finished with that little block. That was quick, wasn't it? Okay. Does everybody understand it? Do you have any questions? All right, put everybody to sleep. Deep stuff. All right, let's move on. We've done hermeneutics. We've done Platonism versus creationism. Now we're going to move on to the covenants. I think that I put it in the center. One of the reasons why I put it in the center is because I think this is one of the crucial elements of the whole thing. What are the covenants? What are the covenants of the Bible? What are the main covenants? There's the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the New Covenant, the covenant of works, the covenant of grace, and the covenant of redemption. Those last three, obviously, I don't think are there. Okay? The covenantalists say the covenant of works, the covenant, we'll talk about that, not this week, but I believe the other ones, those other covenants, are there in the Bible. And the ones that are plain and clear in the scriptures are the ones we're going to stick with. Okay? So, let's start with 
the Noahic covenant. The Noahic covenant. Everybody turn over to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. We're going to talk about the Noahic covenant. Now, at this point, does anybody know of a covenant before the Noahic covenant? And if so, can you tell me what chapter and verse that would be? I'm picking on you. But go ahead. Anybody know in Genesis, before that, a verse that talks about a covenant? Oh, good. That's good. That's good. No, I think he's talking about the covenant of marriage. I think he's talking about the covenant of marriage. It's an interesting thought. Not, uh, we would definitely say that that covenant was not fully explained, though, in that passage, right? Other than to say that there is a relationship, a covenant relationship. Yes, sir? Oh, good question. Let's ask y'all. How would you define covenant? Something in blood? Okay, sometimes, often in Scripture, you had to have blood. A binding agreement between two parties. A binding agreement between two parties. A, 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 a covenant relationship between two parties. Yes? Yes, sir. Why would that be a covenant? Okay, but when we look at a covenant, we usually say it's a binding agreement between two parties. That would definitely be one party saying what's going to happen. I'm not sure if it was an agreement. I don't know if it's a relationship. But I can see what you're saying. Yes, sir. That's what the covenant of works guys would do and the covenant of redemption guys do. Yeah, from the passages themselves, I don't see it. But you do see the, the promise of a seed, I would agree that there's a promise. <coughs> Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I don't see it as a covenant. But we'll talk about these as we get into that last thing. Yeah. That's after. Yeah. We're, Noah. Noah is in chapter eight nine. What about don't you eat that fruit? Yeah, that's a good question. Did they say, okay, we won't, and <laughs> this, is, this, is where, this is where I think that if you can maybe read in a covenant, okay, but as we read through these covenants and we go through this, this is why I put it last to deal with this covenantal concept, because you're doing, you're dealing, y'all are both dealing with the covenantal thought process, covenantal works, eat and you die. Don't eat, you live. That's what the covenant of works, they would say. However, let's look at these covenants and you tell me if you see the similarities. I think these covenants are very clear that we're going to see. Okay? Let's see what's involved. 
Let's look at this next one. Or this first one. Somebody read for us uh, Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Or 1 to 17. 1 to 17. Genesis 9, 1 to 17. Yeah, while you're getting there, what? The, um, would it have been a covenant between the Trinitarian heads? Yeah, that's the covenant. Uh, uh, that's the covenant of grace. We'll talk about that. But again, does the passage say that? Does the Bible tell us that? And again, this right there, that covenant, is arrived at a theological concept that they look at the whole Bible and they say, well, there had to be an agreement between the Father and the Son. Uh, by the members of the Trinity. So therefore, I'm going to give a covenant, and I'm going to call it this, that they made an agreement beforehand, a covenant agreement, okay? And again, I think that's reading into a passage, reading into the passages, your theological constructs, okay? But let's look and see the covenants that are revealed and see, okay? Okay, let's read 9. Somebody read it. Genesis 9, 1 to 17. And God blessed Noah and his sons, said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moves upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea. And to your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green earth have I given you all things. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And surely your blood of your life, lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in his image of God made he man. And you, be he fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. Okay, stop right there for a second. See, I see that these as a whole at the beginning here are commands and things that he's explaining. I don't know if I would say that this is necessarily part of the covenant. These are things that he's telling them to do in light of getting off and how he had rescued them. Okay, keep going. Now, eight. And God spake unto Noah and said unto his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you, neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood, neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I made between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For a perpetual generation, I do not set my bow. I do set my bow, I or do, I set my bow. I do set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow, the bow shall be seen in the clouds. And I remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the clouds, and I will look upon it, and I make... And I may remember that everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. Okay, so 
Y'all see the agreement that he makes. This is a covenant relationship or a covenant agreement that he makes with Noah. What are some features that you would say of this? Just looking at this passage, what are some features of this covenant? The word covenant, <laughs> the word covenant is used. That would be one. The earth, God makes a promise. Is there a promise in this covenant? Yeah. Good. There's a sign of the covenant. So write these things down. You got a promise. You got the use of the word covenant. You've got, uh, you've got a promise, and you've got a sign, right? It's everlasting. The length of the covenant is given. Okay? So you got the length. Anything else? It, who it's between. Who's the parties it's between? Five, yes, it's given. What else? Anything else? Okay. Who's going to guarantee it? This is a bilateral or is this a unilateral? It's unilateral. This is a unilateral covenant. What do I mean by unilateral? One party, or two people are in the agreement or in the relationship, but one party is going to guarantee that it is accomplished, is responsible for carrying it out. Does everybody understand this? Could we say bilateral by verse 13, how he said he'll make a sign? He'll make a covenant between him and the earth? No, because again, it's God that's going to do this, and he's going to make it happen. And it's not on the earth. He doesn't make it. The earth is like agreeing, but I'm just saying, like, those, as long as the earth is under the curse, that God will not allow that to happen again. Yeah, and again, I think that's all God. God's all in it. The, the earth itself is not the. I think you could say the earth is the participant or the vehicle that he's going to use, but I wouldn't say it's a part of the agreement. Yeah. Unilateral. It's carried out by one of the two parties. Okay, again, back to that passage. We're going to walk through it. How many of the five elements that we just listed out do we see in Genesis 1 or in, in Genesis 3? Do we use the word covenant? Are there two? Are there two parties that are are listed? I guess you could say that God has a party. Is the the time explained? There's is there a sign? I would say there is a promise. But again, I I I don't see it so far. It doesn't look like the same language to me. It looks like a promise to me. Prophecy. A prophetic promise that he is making. I don't think it's a covenant relationship. Not yet, or at least I don't see it. Okay? Isn't it the first sign of the gospel? Yeah. And, and every, again, no, no non-covenantal. Me, I'm a non-covenantal guy. Not talking about these covenants, no way I can those. But the covenants of works. Grace, and I'm not saying that it's not referencing the gospel. I believe 100% it's referencing the gospel. Okay? So, yeah, I think it's a promise of one to come. Yes, sir? 
Y'all can ask. Ask these questions. I don't have any. I might not have the answer. Yeah, we're getting there. And, well, I guess my understanding of what a covenant is, is, you know, it's, it's incomplete because I see two parties in this covenant. One, Which God one? Said, God said, you know, establishing the covenant, and Noah not confirming it. So I see one party confirming it, and other not saying anything. But in the Mosaic, the people of Israel said everything that you told us. So yeah, that's why that's called a bilateral covenant. We're going to talk about them. Let's, let's walk through them, okay, one at a time. You have a question. Go ahead. Yeah. You sure? Okay. I, ask the question. Look, I am not going to die on the hill with the whole, is there a covenant relationship with Adam and Eve? He told them not to eat the fruit. I don't see a covenant relationship there, Okay. Yeah, we're getting there. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna show you all the five of these covenants, and then you're going to look at them, and you're going to say, does the language look the same? And I don't think you see the language same, okay? And you'll see there are different covenants. There's two different types or as a whole in, that we're going to go over. One of them is a bilateral covenant, and another is a unilateral covenant, okay? But let's keep going. All right. All right. Next one. Genesis chapter 15. By the way, this one, it appears that there's somewhat of a foreshadowing of the covenant to come, but then the covenant is not established until later. So in other words, often what will happen is, is there will be a, a, a promise of a covenant relationship to come, but then it doesn't really take place until a specific time when the covenant is cut. Were established. Look over at Genesis chapter 15. Alright, this I want to read the whole chapter to you. Here we go, you ready? So, God made a promise in Genesis 12, and I think the promise in Genesis 12 is a prophecy of a covenant to come. Okay? A relationship that He's going to have. Land, seed, and blessing is already mentioned in chapter 12. But 15, here we go. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be, shall be very great. Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Now, how many descendants are there? Lots of them. And everybody says, but doesn't Galatians say that descendants mean singular? There's only one seed? If you're in Galatians talking about that one thing, be careful of making it say that to every one of your Old Testament passages. 
Because this one's obvious what? Lots of descendants. Does everybody understand? Be careful of reading New Testament into the Old because here we see that there's more than one descendants. All right, here we go. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's the salvation verse, right? And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? Talking about the land. So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and he cut the animals in two and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. And I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterwards... They will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a very good, uh, uh, buried at a good old age. Then, in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and flame, flaming torches, torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Canaanite, the Canaanite, the Kenizzite, the Cadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Raphaim, the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. All right. Was there a covenant made here? Okay. Tell me about the covenant. What do you see? This is, a, is this unilateral or bilateral? Why? Abraham was sleeping. Yeah, he was sleeping. And God passed through the two animals, right? There was blood sacrifice in this one, Right? I think that is an element that you see in covenants and it starts to show up more. You could argue that the sacrifices that Noah made, maybe that was, but I don't think so. I think you see, though, there's blood. What else? Anything else? Unilateral. There's a promise. What's the promise? And? Descendants. There's descendants and land. How specific is the land? It's physical. It's very specific. Right? All right. Anything else? Now, these are repeated. This is repeated and continued on throughout the rest of Genesis. You'll see it over and over and over. So my challenge for you this week is I want you to skim. Here's your project for the week. Ready? I want you to skim read the rest of Genesis. Okay? 
you can start in Genesis 12. I want you to skim all of Genesis. All right, that sounds like a lot, but I want you to skim read it. And I want you to look for these elements of the covenant repeated throughout the rest of Genesis. Okay? There's a reason. You'll see it as we go, and we'll pick up with this next week. Okay? Land, seed, blessing, nation, everlasting, time periods. See if that covenant is developed and explained and give me all the elements of these coven this covenant that are explained extra. Do you understand? Look for them. Think what you're going to find is it's all over the rest of Genesis. And then you'll find that it's all over the rest of the Old Testament. Can you go over the, the signs of a covenant again? You were saying, can you say that one more time? The, the things you're looking for? Yeah. Land, seed, blessing, nation, everlasting, time period. Uh, it is, this is a uh, unilateral covenant. Why is it unilateral? By the way, look for, look for this. What, look for the sign of this covenant, too. What is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? Yeah. Look, look for the sign of the covenant. If we are under the Abrahamic covenant, should we... Do the sign of the covenant. If we are under the Abrahamic covenant, should we do the sign of the circumcision? Cir sign of the covenant. Circumcision. <laughs> we sprinkle babies instead. Yes. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting. Yes. <laughs> but I don't think it's the Abrahamic covenant. Just to go back to that, I think that's our spiritual circumcision is not pointing to the Abrahamic covenant. I don't think so. I'm not quite understanding. I think that's the new covenant, in my opinion. Yeah. Unilateral. Let me finish here. Okay. Oh, really? Not when we get to Moses. Not when we get to the mosaic, you'll see. Okay. Well, then, how can these... I'm just not quite understanding. The mosaic covenant, God is going to say, you do this, and I'll bless you. You don't do this, I'll curse you. And they say, ah, oh, the greatest lie ever given in Scripture. Oh, that you say, we will do. Not. But that was a bilateral covenant. It means both parties have to agree and they have to both assume responsibilities, right? Then Joshua tells them just a little bit later that they can't worship and follow his God. Yeah, I know. That's a, that's a good question. But then he also says, choose this day whom you will serve. Right. He says, choose this day whom you will serve. He says, but you can't. Yeah. And that what it's, I would say that that's, our, that's trying to get them to fall on their face and say... I need God to do this, and then I can do it. Because he can do it. Joshua can do it. Why can he do it and they can't? Because he's dependent upon God to accomplish it. Do you understand? I think that the Mosaic Law can, could be kept directionally, but not perfectionally, by those that were redeemed. The Mosaic Law could be kept directionally, not perfectionally, 
by the redeemed believers. Directionally, not perfect. I think he didn't give the law just to, it was not just to only condemn them. To just, I hope you're listening closely. Don't misquote me. Listen, that's not the only reason. Okay? The law is not only to show that we can't. There's another element of the law that is to help the people. I don't know if I'd call it in Christ, but redeemed. Redeemed in the Mosaic Law. Mo- Joshua says, as for me and my house, I will, as for you and my, me and my house, I will serve the Lord. He's saying, I'm going to keep the law. He's saying, I'm going to keep the Mosaic Law. Directionally. I love your law, O Lord, is what David says. How do they say this? Well, they say this at being redeemed believers in the Old Covenant. So it's direction, not perfection, even in the Old Testament, too. The law is there to help. It's not, it's not only to condemn. For the redeemed, it's also a good thing. It's a good thing they don't murder everybody. It's a, it's a constraint, and it's also a direction that they should live. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, and then, and then we obey. All right, so y'all are looking for the, uh, yes, y'all are looking for the covenant. Did I answer, there was a question, did I answer your question, bilateral, unilateral, you know the difference? Okay. Questions? Listen again, uh, we'll close with this. Uh, there are a lot of uh, amils, there, I, I will tell you this, covenantals and amils and postmills and premills, can't be put in boxes anymore. Okay, now what I mean by that is, is that you have a variation in every camp that buys some of the other truths, if that makes sense. The borders are, are crossing borders with... The, yeah, they lean over. So you've got new covenantalists that would say, I don't believe in the covenant of works. They would say that they don't agree with those three covenants, the covenant of works, the covenant of redemption, and covenant of grace. They would say, no, those aren't even true. But they would still say that the church has replaced Israel, supersessionism. Okay? So you've got some... It's, it's not this perfect, ah, uh, everybody fits in this box. Well, they do. There's all these new systems always coming. There's a new... new uh, what was the new one? New premillennialists. I mean, there's just always something new coming up, okay? So for us to, I'm making, I'm trying to say basically that's the way it is, but just understand that it doesn't always fit in that camp. Hokemah, Hokemah, he's got a great book on salvation. It's excellent. His, but his underst- and his understanding of God having a plan for Israel is pretty cool. And he actually is a creation model. He leans creation model. So you think, oh, this guy's great. But then there are elements where he's not consistent. And he says that Satan's bound right now. And he says that thousand doesn't mean thousand. Okay, so not everybody 
fits in the box. Okay? So if you fit into a box when you leave, you're probably wrong. No. <laughs> we're all leaky. And we're all learning. And we're all growing in our understanding of these things because these are pretty hard. All right? Pan millennialist. That's exactly right. Just throw my hands up and say, hey, let's don't even try to figure it out. Yeah, and you don't want to go there. We want to be try to be as consistent with scripture as possible. All right, y'all are dismissed. Thank you. If you have questions, you can come see me.